Welcome to Escape Routes with Condé Nast Traveller. My name is Melinda Stevens, the Editor-in-Chief of Condé Nast Traveller US and Condé Nast Traveller UK, and it is my pleasure to introduce you to our podcast series. Travel is all about storytelling, a story of a place, of its people, of a journey, and at Condé Nast Traveller we've always celebrated the most transportative, evocative travel writing. With much of the world currently grounded, we've come together to take you to some of our favourite places, if only in your imagination, by listening to our most loved travel stories read aloud by the writers who penned them. We hope these short escape routes allow you to daydream of far-flung adventures, discover the world's curious corners or recast familiar destinations in a fresh light, and that you love these travel stories as much as I do. Hello, my name is Steve King. Welcome to Condé Nast Traveller's Escape Routes. I'll be reading my piece on Tasmania, which featured in the June 2019 issue of Condé Nast Traveller. I hope you enjoy it. Shortly before closing time in a saloon bar in Hobart, a tearful stranger arranged herself on the stool next to mine with the slow-motion delicacy of advanced drunkenness. She wiped her face with the back of one hand, raised a glass with the other, and smiling sweetly asked me where I'd come from and what I was doing in Tasmania. There was a pause while she took in the particulars. But, she said at last, but what's here? And why are you there? By lunchtime the following afternoon, I was several hundred kilometres away on the banks of the Franklin River, which flows through ravines and gorges and untouched tracts of temperate rainforest from its source in the Cheney Range Mountains to its confluence with the Gordon River in the southwest. In some places, the Franklin runs so smoothly that the reflections on its surface appear as solid as the three-dimensional objects they mirror. The fronds of electric green ferns extending like the wings of tropical butterflies. Cliffs of weathered quartzite as severe as the walls of a Gothic cathedral. Towering myrtle beeches and blackwoods and Huon pines exquisitely fragrant like incense. The trunk of a Huon pine grows at a rate of about a millimetre a year. I stood in the shade of trees that have been casting their shade in the same place since the time of Jesus Christ. That I or anyone else may do so today is something of a marvel in itself. The Franklin and its rainforest were almost lost for good in the early 1980s, when the Tasmanian government and the Hydroelectric Commission developed plans for a dam in order to create a power station. The river's unlikely saviour was a gangly GP from the mainland named Bob Brown, who'd come to Tasmania in search of the thylacine, or Tasmanian tiger. The last of its kind is believed to have died in captivity in 1936. He never found one, but rafting down the Franklin, he found something else, 
the bulldozers of the Hydroelectric Commission preparing to flood the river. Brown couldn't let this stretch of water suffer the fate that had befallen the Tasmanian tiger. He toured the state, whipping up the support of like-minded greenies. Soon he was leading thousands in acts of mass civil disobedience, culminating in the 1982 blockade at Warner's Landing, where 1,300 protesters were arrested. Against all odds, it worked. The Prime Minister intervened, the case went to the High Court, the bulldozers were stopped in their tracks. It was one of the defining political-environmental conflicts of Australian history, changing the way the country thought about its landscape and the management of its natural resources. This remote corner of a remote island state, one that still occasionally gets left off maps of the continent, even those drawn up by Australians, was ground zero in a great explosion of feeling about wilderness and why it matters, which has reverberated ever more strongly in the decades since, not only in Australia, but all over the world. Wild places, as the events of 1982 showed with exceptional clarity, do in fact need people, if only to keep other people's hands off them. Wandering around that ancient rainforest in mute contentment, I was reminded of something Andy Warhol said. I think having land and not ruining it is the most beautiful art anybody could ever want to own. What a wonderfully enlightened perception and how odd that it should have been voiced by that most resolutely metropolitan and materialistic of men. My arrangements in Tasmania were as loose and agreeably meandering as my thoughts in the rainforest. I entirely ignored the East Coast and its celebrated Freycinet Peninsula and concentrated instead on the centre, south and west. Although by Australian standards the distances I covered were not great, the terrain made travel by car relatively slow, which was perfectly all right with me. The landscape was constantly changing and frequently spectacular, from the pre-lapsarian lushness of the Franklin to a sort of home county's ideal and an almost Nordic ruggedness. I was particularly taken by Thousand Lakes Lodge, originally built as a training centre for Antarctic explorers, and lately spiffed up and opened up to the public. The trout fishing I'd heard was among the best in the world. What makes the trout here so special, I asked. Mate, I was told, when the wind's up and there are waves on the lakes, these trout swim to the surface and surf. When I queried the accuracy of the lodge's name, I learned that far from being an exaggeration, it was actually something of an understatement. There are more than a thousand lakes in the area. This too was inconceivable to me. Then again, there was something inconceivable, almost hallucinatory, about the entire place, a seemingly endless, gently undulating, windswept plateau with blindingly bright patches of snow on slick, dark stone, like an orca's back, or like a trout in a wetsuit. Pump House Point, a decommissioned hydroelectric power station on Lake St. Clair, was equally remarkable. Though the Hydroelectric Commission, which built it in 1940, had nothing to do with its recent conversion into one of the loveliest hotels in Tasmania, I found it difficult not to see the place as a form of atonement. It's gorgeous, a pearl-coloured structure of almost Palladian elegance in the middle of a vast lake reached by a long wooden jetty and overlooked by snow-capped mountains. The best room, however, is not in the pump house itself, 
but in the newly built retreat, a self-contained apartment at the other end of the jetty, with 180 degree views of the lake. I sat on the edge of the jetty with my legs dangling over water so limpid I could see platypuses swimming in its depths, those duck-billed, web-footed miracles of evolution, egg-laying mammals and confounders of taxonomy whose extreme strangeness led the scientists who first examined a specimen to believe they were the victims of a hoax. I couldn't have been more delighted if I'd seen a litter of snow leopard kittens doing handstands. Back in Hobart, I found a receptive audience for my trout and platypus anecdotes in chef Kobe Ruziker and sommelier Sarah Fitzsimmons, co-owners of the restaurant Jamaica. Sarah welcomes you with a glass of something interesting to knock your socks off, whether you ask for it or not. My only question, as she handed me a fearsome Negroni, was whether she and Kobe had any rules about drinking on the job. No, she said, surprised. Isn't that one of the reasons you open a restaurant? Everything happened with a minimum of fuss, yet if you looked carefully, you might have detected telltale signs of obsession everywhere. Sarah's Negroni, for starters, was so good that it demanded an explanation, and she was only too happy to share her trade secrets. For those of you who care about these things, substitute organic bio-bitter for the usual Campari. A 50-50 mixture of Antica formula and Dolin Rouge works a charm for the vermouth component. Add Tasmanian small-batch gin by Taylor and Smith, plus two dashes of absinthe for your sins, and one dash for those of the Hydroelectric Commission. Don't get Kobe started on the virtues of his vintage Conroe, a Japanese oven-like contraption from which he conjures dishes as good as I've eaten in any restaurant in Australia. I remember in particular little tapas-like bites with spigarello, kohlrabi and Jerusalem artichoke. There's a proliferation of similar places, determinedly locavore, small-scale, impassioned, in and around Hobart. In addition to Jamaica, I was impressed by Fico, Templo, Franklin and the agrarian kitchen. What delighted me even more than the excellence of the food and wine was the lack of cynicism and pomposity. Not so much as a hipster sneer. These restaurants seem to be run by, and largely for, talented, interesting young women and men, blissfully happy to be doing what they're doing in a place where the rent is cheap, the air is clean, and rush hour is little more than a rumour. Perhaps the city's greatest, and certainly by now its most widely known, cause for self-congratulation was the unexpected gift of local misfit and mathematical genius David Walsh, who made his pile as a professional gambler and was so clever and successful that casinos eventually refused to let him set foot inside. But Walsh's greatest talent turned out to be collecting art and getting up people's noses. He used his millions to create Mona, the Museum of Old and New Art, on the site of a winery on the Derwent River in Hobart. It opened in 2011, and though not without its detractors, was an overnight sensation immediately recognised as one of the most engaging and provocative art galleries on earth, with its compelling mixture of blue-chip masterpieces, wacky experiments, grand-scale installations and cast porcelain vaginas. Walsh lives above the gallery with his wife and daughter. It's not uncommon, I was told, to see the whole family bouncing up and down on a trampoline on the roof. 
Walsh himself is often spotted wandering around the gallery, just looking at the art like everyone else, though recognisable as the only one to be doing so in a pair of slippers and nursing a glass of vintage Pedro Jimenez sherry or an ink-black martini with a real sheep's eye slowly disintegrating in it, both of which are available at Faru, the new tapas restaurant downstairs. I recommend the sherry. I would have liked to meet him. I suspect that he has a sense of humour to match his sense of self-importance. There are side-by-side parking spaces outside the gallery for himself and his wife, labelled God and God's Mistress. On my last afternoon in Tasmania, I went back to the bar where, a week earlier, I'd exchanged pleasantries with the tearful drunk lady. I was hoping to resume our conversation and to answer her cryptic questions. The joint was empty. I ordered a drink, an aviation, since I was on my way to the airport. My thoughts returned to the river and the rainforest and the enchanted days I'd spent in its green shade. That, I would have told the tearful drunk lady if I'd found her, is what is here and why I was there. This podcast is sponsored by Tourism Australia. Domestic flights to Tasmania's capital, Hobart, depart from all other major Australian cities, including Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane, Adelaide and Perth. The flight time from the nearest city, Melbourne, is just over one hour. For more information to help you plan your trip, visit australia.com. We hope you enjoyed our Escape Routes podcast. Please remember to like and subscribe to help boost us in the charts and ensure you are the first to hear about new episodes.